Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's not often that a doctor finds a solution for some of his toughest patients. You know, here's an anecdote. Radiologist David Kalmus thought he might have found one for patients with spinal fractures. Um, I remember treating a patient who, uh, it was a woman, who had a fracture at uh, T7, which is up in between your shoulder blades. She had osteoporosis, which makes these breaks really hard to treat. And she was in such pain. Her husband was there. He said, please, doc, she can't move. You know, you got to do something. Please help her. So Dr. Kalmus did this surgery on her. He'd actually helped develop it himself. It is very simple, actually. Uh, You go through the skin. You put a medium-sized needle into the bone itself, into the fracture. You mix up medical cement and inject it down the barrel of the needle. You then remove the needle, and over the next hour or so, the cement hardens, and that's the end of it. Basically, you glue the bones back together. It's called vertebroplasty. So we did a vertebroplasty, and then, and then I called her house a couple days later, and, and her husband answered, and I said, can I talk to her? And he goes, yeah, just a second. She's carrying the groceries in. Give, her, give me a minute. You know, that's, <laughs> that's the kind of miraculous response. Now, she shouldn't have been doing that because we tell him not to lift more than a gallon of milk. I was going to say, I love that he put her to work, like, right away. The patients feel so good, they want to get back to their normal activity. So Dr. Kalmus's surgery, vertebroplasty, has been a huge success. He went around the country teaching other surgeons how to do it. It started to dawn on him, though, that he couldn't pinpoint exactly how the surgery helped. The amount of pain relief doesn't seem to correlate to the amount of cement you put in. And there is no standard way of doing the procedure, even, in terms of putting the cement into the fracture or next to the fracture. There's no pre-specified amount of cement. And I knew of some cases where the, the doctor actually cemented the wrong fracture, and the patients got relief. If the specifics don't matter, then what is going on here? Today on Only Human, Dr. Kalmus tries to figure out what's working for his patients and ends up questioning what works for any of us when we go to the doctor. We're asking, could the success of some medical treatments, even surgeries, really be all in our heads? Dr. Kalmus wanted to put his surgery to a test. He wanted to see how well vertebroplasty worked compared to a placebo surgery. You've heard of placebo pills in clinical trials, like a sugar pill. But placebo surgery is really rare. They call it a sham trial. Dr. Kalmus had to convince a whole team of surgeons, nurses, and anesthesiologists to perform this fake surgery. I, I don't like to use the word fake. Um, we, weren't, we weren't faking anybody out. It was all in, out in the open. Patients who signed up for the trial knew they might not get the real surgery. But they didn't know the lengths the researchers would go to to fool them. No one, not even the doctors, would know whether the surgery they were about to perform would be real until after they'd already drugged the patient and were standing in a surgical room, ready to go. With Dr. Kalmus watching from a room next door. We then would open the randomization envelope and decide whether to put the cement in or not. So if they were put in the cement group, we would put the bigger needle in, inject the cement... And that cement has a really strong smell, sort of like nail polish remover. So if the patient was getting the sham surgery... We would try to convince them that they were put into the cement group. We would open the cement to put the smell in the room. We would press in their back and we would say, okay, ma'am, the cement is going in fine. 
all this was pretty controversial, even inside the hospital. And and I remember that, that one of my very talented colleagues um, was on the procedure line one day. This one doctor had his scrubs on and was getting ready to inject cement. But then the team opened the randomization envelope. And the patient got randomized to the sham. And he, I'm in there and the, I'm looking at the procedure through the, through the leaded glass. He's looking out there and he's rolling his eyes like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? He couldn't believe that he got sucked into this charade. When it's over, this skeptical surgeon is on his way to visit the patient in post-op when a nurse stops him. The nurse says, wait a second, Dr. X, wait, wait, wait. Uh, before you go, I got to tell you, you are a miracle worker. When this patient came in this morning, she could barely move and now she's walking without pain. Oh, my gosh. What did he say to you afterwards? He was, he was stunned. Stunned. And so was I. We found that, that vertebroplasty works, but we found also that the, the sham vertebroplasty worked. In fact, it worked equally as well. So vertebroplasty worked no better than a fake surgery with no cement, no treatment whatsoever. Dr. Kalmus published his results in the New England Journal of Medicine. And lots of doctors thought he was saying something pretty simple, that vertebroplasty was a fraud. People who do the procedure, they were angry. They believe in their heart of hearts beyond the shadow of a doubt that vertebroplasty works. So they tried to find flaws in his study. So your colleagues basically ripped you to shreds. Or tried to. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, I think I think the word, you know, the name Kalmus was pejorative. And it still is. It has been for a long time, you know. My my point of view is that, that, that the study we did was provocative. I always told people that it may, it may raise more questions than it answers. And the one thing that I hoped would come out of it was that people would try to prove me wrong. And that subsequent studies perhaps designed better than mine because they could fix my mistakes, would be carried out and we'd get a more definitive answer. Dr. Kalmus is still waiting on that definitive answer. But he thinks most doctors misunderstood his findings. He says it's not that vertebroplasty doesn't work. It does work. You, you put the patient in the room, put cement in their back, they get better. Also, I know when you take a group of patients and pretend to do vertebroplasty, that also works. <laughs> But that seems like both can't be true, really. Well, they right? can both be true, and and your 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 conclusion would be that the cement is not what works; it's something else. He thought maybe the anesthesia they injected was somehow breaking a cycle of pain, so he tried just giving the anesthetic. That didn't work, but he has other ideas. It could be that the patient's getting better over time, right? And you happen to catch them on a bad day, and they suddenly got better. Um, that's one possibility. Um, it could be just going through the procedure, you know, that there's some, something about it. I don't know what you want to call it. Is it the placebo effect? I don't know. The placebo effect happens in almost every clinical study. Some patients just get better after fake treatment. Doctors aren't sure why. But if this was a placebo effect, it was huge, as strong as the surgery itself. Well, here's the thing that stands out to me. You keep saying that this surgery definitely works. Do you still do vertebroplasties? I do. How often? And we do, you know, at least a procedure a day, I would say, um, or, you know, several a week. Uh, 
of patients who have really don't have any other options. You know, their pain is not going away. They've, they've maximized their narcotics. They've been in bed. And so we do the procedure and the patients get better. How much do you explain your own research to patients when they're considering this surgery? You know, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I refer to it and I say, you know, there was a study done that was, um, you know, uh, that calls into question whether the, the procedure is, is effective because of the cement or because of something else. Um, do you say that you did the study? I typically do. Most of them want the procedure anyway. Most of them, when, by, the, by the time they get to us, they've been down a pretty long road. If you were in pain, would you get this surgery? Wow, I've never been asked that before. I probably would want it. Pain is horrible, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm kind of feeling for you as a clinician because I can hear you just saying, I have to do something for these patients. Absolutely. And it's so easy for me to put cement in. I can, that's the easiest thing in the world for me is to put cement in somebody's back. I'm, I know exactly how to do that. <laughs> I don't know how to tell a patient about all the nuances of the research and, and figure out whether it's placebo effect. I can't figure that stuff out, but I know I can put cement in and I know they're going to get better. After the break, we talk to someone who is trying to figure out why Dr. Kalmus's fake surgery has a real benefit. Someone who thinks the placebo effect could make all of us feel a lot better. Last week's show, we went to an anatomy lab where medical students were working on a cadaver. While the students were dissecting the body, they had no idea who this person was. Later, we learned the man's life story from his wife. And she explained why donating his body to a medical school made so much sense for him. The episode really struck a chord with some of you who are considering donating your bodies to science. Emily Pergament on Twitter said her reason for donating her body was simple. Our bodies can either be useful or useless after death, she said. I choose useful. Molly from New York said, My 103-year-old grandmother donated her body to science. Coming from a family of scientists and having lived through the Depression, this indulged my grandmother's belief in scientific research and her frugal nature. My grandmother hated waste. Seeing how easy the process was for the family, my father plans to leave his body to science as well. We love hearing from you guys. Keep this conversation going. You can find us on Twitter at OnlyHuman or on Facebook at OnlyHumanPodcast. Hey there, I'm Pat Walters, senior editor at Radiolab, and this summer I'm hosting a new series on the concept of intelligence. It seems like Pandora's box. We're calling the series G, and it dives deep into the biological, historical, and ethical debates swirling around this controversial idea. I'm so nervous. What exactly is intelligence? Can we measure it? And should we? Listen to Radiolab from WNYC Studios wherever you get your podcasts. This is Only Human. I'm Mary Harris. Before the break, we were talking to Dr. David Kalmus, 
when he had doubts about his vertebroplasty surgery, he put it to a test, comparing patients who got real surgery to patients who got fake surgery, a placebo surgery. His conclusion was that both surgeries worked. For years, doctors have tested their medical interventions against placebos. And if a real pill or procedure works no better than a fake one, they throw it out. They assume whatever they're testing is a kind of trick your mind is playing on your body. But some doctors are starting to question that logic. For the last five years, Harvard Medical School has run something called the Center for Placebo Studies. A guy named Ted Kapchik is the director. I asked him to explain how he thinks a placebo works. He said our brains have evolved to protect us from danger. So imagine you're in the woods. And you know there are a lot of snakes. And you're walking around, you see a stick. For one second, your brain sees a snake. It's absolutely a snake. And then you say, oh, it's not really a snake. Your brain makes you see that imaginary snake in order to protect you, just in case. It starts releasing adrenaline, that fight-or-flight response kicks in. Ted thinks the placebo effect is sort of similar. Take Dr. Kalmas's patients. Even if the surgery was fake, some patients' brains may have reacted as if it was real, keeping their pain under control. You know, when you say that, though, that it's mm-hmm. making the brain see a snake when it's actually a stick. Right. It does feel like a trick to me. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. If you think it's a trick, I'm fine with that. <laughs> it's not, I don't, it's, it's, is it a trick? If you think, uh, uh, I think I'm doing something very serious. I think I'm activating endogenous self-healing mechanisms in the human body. But if, if that's – if you want to call it a trick, I'm fine. I don't care about the labels. I'm, and placebo is a terrible word anyway, so I'll call it a trick medicine. <laughs> Ted Kapchik got interested in how the mind could influence the body after years of studying East Asian medicine. Before he came to Harvard, he worked a few blocks away as an acupuncturist. I kept seeing things that were not explainable by my training as a practitioner of Chinese medicine, and they were not really being explained by biomedicine at that time. There was one woman in particular who came into his acupuncture clinic. So the woman comes and tells me she has bronchitis and she has cough. So he gives her some herbs to clear up her chest. But then three weeks later, this woman's husband comes back with a gift. Her husband came with her with a beautiful Persian carpet and said, oh, this is so great. You uh, really healed my wife, and she didn't have to have the surgery. Ted Kapchik didn't know this, but this woman had been in pain from ovarian cysts. After her visit, the pain was gone, and she canceled her surgery. And I'm going, I didn't hear about anything about surgery. And I looked at my records. I said, I treated a bronchitis. And, but they, you know, some language difficulties. They thought I treated the woman's ovarian cysts. And I said, oh, my God, this is kind of weird. And this wasn't the only patient who seemed to miraculously recover. Occasionally, I would notice that people would get better as I was writing a herbal prescription and walk out like of the room. Like literally as you're writing it? Yeah, I could see it. They were more happy. Their eyes, you know, their eyes weren't so droopy. They sat up more. And they walked out different than they walked in. So I said, Ted, oh, God, are you becoming a psychic healer? <laughs> and, you know, I was terrorized by that idea. Why were you terrorized the, by it? Because, you know, it for me, it was not something attractive. I really liked the uh, scholarliness of Chinese medicine or Asian medicine. I liked the academics of modern biomedicine. So he started looking to see if there was a medical explanation for the kinds of recoveries he was seeing. 
He found it in a study of dental pain that linked the placebo effect to the release of endorphins in the brain. Yeah, that was a major watershed in placebo history. And it was the first time that the placebo got some kind of neurobiological explanation. This was not patients making it up in their head. This was back in 1978. Researchers knew that for some reason, patients who got their molars removed often reported pain relief, even if they only thought they were getting morphine. The doctors wanted to know why. So they divided patients recovering from dental surgery into three groups. Some people got a regular drug and that worked well. So the first group got morphine and a real numbing effect. But the second group didn't get morphine. They got a placebo, just salt water. And some of them still felt numb. And they got placebo effects. It was like, you know, not the same as the drug, but sometimes almost as much as the drug. The third group is where things got interesting. Instead of morphine or saline. The third group got naloxone. So if this was just trick medicine, you'd expect the third group to see a placebo effect too. Those groups didn't get any placebo effect. Ted Kapschick says that's because naloxone blocks the effects of endorphins, which are our body's natural painkiller. For him, it's proof that the placebo effect can be tied to chemistry in the brain. But when Ted Kapchik arrived at Harvard 20 years later, research like this hadn't really made an impact. Doctors still thought of the placebo effect as an oxymoron, the effect of a substance with no effect. It was a pejorative. It was a way of dismissing what was a threat on some weird level to the confidence and amazing capacity modern medicine has to use good drugs and use effective surgery and procedures. The only time these doctors used placebos, they were being dishonest with their patients, administering them as though they were real drugs in clinical trials. Everyone thinks that you have to lie to get a placebo effect, or used to think that, and that deception is involved. It makes the whole question kind of unpleasant and and unethical. So Ted decided to conduct a new clinical study. He asked, what if you gave patients a placebo, but you didn't lie about it? Can you describe, like, how's your week been? Why are we talking on the phone? <laughs> it's been it's been extremely hectic because this week I've been working every single day. Our producer, um, Julia Longoria, caught up with one of his study participants on the phone last week. So I haven't had two, two seconds to, you know, to be home or to even get on the phone and talk to anybody. This is Linda Buonanno. She has irritable bowel syndrome. Linda's stress makes her IBS worse, and her condition doesn't have a clear cause, which is why Ted Kapchik wanted to study it. He doesn't think he's going to cure cancer with a placebo, but he thinks he can manage symptoms like depression or anxiety. And in Linda's case, the symptom is crippling stomach pain. I have four children, and two of them I had natural. And let me tell you, this is worse than any labor pain. I would rather deliver a child right now than to have IBS. Linda tried cutting out dairy or gluten. Nothing worked. She heard about Ted's study for IBS patients on TV, So she went in, and a doctor handed her a bottle of pills. And he was completely honest with her. He said, these are sugar pills. Take one twice a day for three weeks. You know, and I'm thinking, this is crazy. I'm taking a fake pill. Isn't this wonderful? This is really going to solve my problem, right? But, you know, I did whatever he said. He says, you have to... You know, when you take it, say that this is, you know, in your mind that this is going to work, this is going to help you out. You have to believe that, he said. She says after a couple of days, without her really even realizing it, her symptoms vanished. That's the first time for three weeks 
that I had no pain as if I had nothing. That's the only time in 20 years. Picture that. Three weeks out of 20 years. Linda wasn't the only one. More than half of the participants got better. 62% uh, said they were, had adequate relief, and the people had no treatment. I think 27% had adequate relief, meaning that their illness spontaneously got better. Um, so what, what happened in that study is people got better. Now, you ask me why they got better, that's a harder question. <laughs> Do you want me to try to answer it? Yeah, go ahead. I think we go to a doctor's office. You know, there's the waiting room. You walk in. The doctor says a few words. Uh, you have to be – the doctor is a little bit authoritative. You're a little docile. Even if you're president of the United States, you have to be a little bit respectful of your doctor more. And then they tell you to take off your clothes. You take off your clothes. You've really undergone uh, a ritual, a process where you come in and they do things for you. Even without the drugs, something will happen positive. Ted Kapchik calls this the ritual of medicine. And he thinks this ritual is what activates your brain to begin the process of healing itself. So it wasn't the pill that made Linda Buonanno feel better. It was everything surrounding the pill. After she was done with the study, Linda tried her own experiment. I took those fake ones afterwards at the, at the food store. She bought her own sugar pills, started taking them without the doctor, without the fanfare. You know, it did absolutely nothing for me. So that's why I'm thinking it's definitely a combination of everything together. And I think you have to have trust in your doctor. The way he talked to me, what he said to me, you know, it, you know, he was hopeful. You could feel that he was hopeful for some reason. Linda told us she'd gone to one other doctor before this study. But that doctor treated her like she was crazy. The doctor in Ted Kapchik's study took her condition seriously. That's why he thinks the placebo worked. Just last week, Linda Bonanno got an email that the Harvard lab is going to start another study. I'm just so excited to go see him again, you know, because I'm hoping to get some relief. I'll even take another three weeks. <laughs> I'll take another three weeks of feeling fantastic and feeling healthy. I just, I need a break. <laughs> this time, Ted Kapchik wants to take a look at Linda's genes, because not everyone responded as well as she did to those sugar pills. He wants to see if responding well to placebos may be something that runs in the family. So are you imagining a future where someone who's genetically predisposed to the placebo effect could go to the doctor and be prescribed a sugar pill? No. Well, I have no imagination. That sounds too mechanistic and too – it's going to be more complicated. I'm thinking that if we know someone has a tendency to respond uh, to the doctors and the clinical interaction, we might start a lower dosage. We're not thinking about it in terms of – prescribing placebo, but can I tell you, let me tell you something. Can I tell you something? Yeah, of course. Okay. So why do we have a placebo effect? Why do we, why can't we just, um, why can't the body just reduce pain and get rid of it quickly by itself? Why do you need a sugar pill in a doctor or a nurse? Yeah, tell me. Come on, that's a really interesting question, right? Well, if you look at most of the things that placebo treats, the ritual medicine, they're actually um, things that you can't live without, pain. If we didn't have pain, if we injured ourselves, we wouldn't get immobilized and start a healing process. If we didn't have nausea, we wouldn't vomit when we ate things that made us sick. If we, um, if we didn't get depressed, we wouldn't change our lives. If we weren't anxious, we wouldn't notice things that were threatening us. If we didn't have fatigue, we wouldn't uh, lie down and rest. All these things that are really complaints when they're out of control 
are things that we need to live on. And the human beings have evolved to increase or decrease those things in context. For Ted Kapchik, placebos work not because they cure us, but because they help us manage these essential human conditions. And that's not a role all doctors are necessarily used to playing. Do you think doctors and patients have different goals here? Yeah. Like, that's really sad. Tell me that's about the, that. Uh, that's really one of my major worries is, you know, medicine is, is an incredible achievement, biomedicine. But medicine's also about changing how a person feels and, and valuing what a person feels. Uh, I think there's an overemphasis on the technology of healing and not on the um, art of healing. And I'll, I'll be quite simple and say that I think what I'm doing is quantifying and making the art of medicine a science. That was Ted Kapchik. He's the director of the program in placebo studies and the therapeutic encounter at Harvard University. Now, we want to hear from you. What are the treatments you use that aren't quite medical? Tell us your placebo stories. Reach us at onlyhuman.org or on Facebook at Only Human Podcast. Only Human is a production of WNYC Studios. This episode was produced by Julia Longoria. It was edited by Lital Malad with help from Kenny Malone. Our team includes Amanda Aronchik, Elaine Chen, Paige Cowett, Fred Mogul, Ankita Rao, Ariana Tobin, and Jillian Weinberger. Our technical director is Michael Raphael. Thanks also to Megan Kunane and Eleni Murphy. Jim Schachter is the vice president for news at WNYC. I'm Mary Harris. Talk to you next week. Support for WNYC's health coverage and Only Human is provided by the Torina Endowment Fund, Jane and Gerald Catcher, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Simons Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and the Winston Foundation. <laughs>